Anna. And I'm Anton. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Scalpel. You've, you've mentioned having a tribe is really important for your own mental health, for that preventative side of things, but also for reaching out and helping those around you that might be struggling. But this is something that Rax has brought up and has made a priority. And it's, I think, something that is unfortunately somewhat well known, especially within surgery, is, is the workplace culture and the issues surrounding that. And, you know, what happens if your tribe is dysfunctional? And I imagine that would be the opposite of a preventative factor. What have your experiences been with you know, poor workplace culture? And are there any tips you have for our yeah. audience members about navigating challenging situations? Absolutely. So let's, let's um, start by accepting the fact that you will meet very difficult people, uh, both um, staff members who are at your level or staff members who run your life, uh, you know, senior registrars, consultants, um, even administrators, uh, patients. Dealing with difficult people is just a skill that we all need to adopt. Unfortunately, you know, I wish uh, we all had perfect, um, you know, uh, uh, workplaces or consultants to work with. But in reality, uh, we're, we've all got our baggages we've, we've carried into, into work. Um, so uh, how do you navigate toxic uh, relationships, toxic bosses or toxic work culture? Work, work culture? Well, firstly, you've got to come in from a position of, okay, um, there is a work that needs to be done, which is caring for the patient. And we would do everything we can to achieve that aim, caring for patient. If the toxic workplaces starts to interfere with that, that becomes a patient safety issue. Right, And we just have to firstly understand that, that when it becomes a safety issue to the patient, that's a red flag. Um, and, and being wise in navigating that uh, is important because you still want to keep your job at the end of the day, particularly as you train. You know, you have the next 10 years of your life, you are dependent on the next job and the next job and the next job, you know, until you become a fully qualified consultant and you can run your life a little bit more. Um, here are a few tips that I often, often uh, uh, tell. But now, again, there's minor little sub-challenges uh, here. Sexism, um, racism, uh, gender inequities, and all those things sometimes get mixed in here. But I just want to provide a, a general thing. So, I, 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 you know, uh, as, a, as a male surgeon with a brown skin color, uh, you know, I cannot speak for everyone. I can only speak for what I've experienced. So yes, um, when you're dealing with some challenging, uh, let me step back by saying this. I know that every time I move to a new hospital, there'll be a couple of clinicians there, be it surgeons or registrars, that might be really challenging. And I actually made it a point to pick up the two most, quote unquote, the two most challenging person in that unit and see if I can turn them around in six months. That was a personal goal for me. So I could gamify that, you know, to myself. I didn't tell anyone, uh, of course. Um, and I said, all right, so these two are going to be really challenging. So how do I maneuver myself around them? What are their, their quirks? What are their challenges? What are their, the, what are the buttons that, you know, when you press, they explode? Mm. Uh, you know? And so, so just being aware of that, trying to approach that. Um, and interestingly, you know, the more, I, you, the more you realize, you know, books are written about this, the more you realize um, that 
that that people have got their uh, their drives, the more you understand them, there'll always be a key that would unlock some of these people. Uh, and you just got to understand them and just treat them as humans as well. They, they don't necessarily have evil intent, but you know it could just be their life that unfortunately has spilled over into their professional life. And you just got to be compassionate uh, in that sense. But of course, I also want to be careful as well by saying um, there comes a point when it becomes dangerous yeah. and it becomes uh, a risk to you. If it is a risk to you and it's dangerous to you, you have to step out and seek help. And right now, you know, where I was 10, 15 years ago um, through our training, it's very different to where we are right now. So right now, I think you do have very clear support. As a surgical trainee, you're protected to a certain degree and you can ask for help from your surgical training association. Uh, as, a, as, a, you know, and as a resident, you are also protected as well to a certain degree by your resident association in your hospital. So there'll always be some uh, assistance available. But you know, coming to it as a human being, approaching the other person as a human being, trying to understand where the other person is coming from, trying to seek advice from people who have gone before you, uh, people who are currently working with you. Those are small little tips and nothing is ever black and white. And oftentimes, the more you dig under the cover, you realize, actually, this is probably why, why this has been going on. There might be politics between two or three consultants. Do you join? Do you get involved, or do you step out? That's all a lot of a wisdom call, really. You know, you got to understand your your field. Now, that's a generic thing because I don't want to go into details, and I also don't want people to feel that it is their problem to solve. Uh, you know, um, you sometimes do need to seek help. Um, a lot of times, yeah. And for people who are maybe medical students or, you know, interns or junior doctors, when they may not have that confidence to step up and seek help, do you have any tips for people like that? Um, firstly, I think I mentioned a couple. Uh, firstly, um, understanding that it is uh, about patient safety and then it's about your safety. If patient safety or your safety is at risk or questioned, then I think you should step up and, and, and say something, okay? And the methods of saying something is where the wisdom really comes in. Um, if you really have to report, sometimes uh, approaching um, another colleague at the same level or a more senior colleague such as your registrar or another consultant in the same unit might be the first thing that you would approach. Uh, and it has to always be a question. Never attack with a claim. Always come from a position of you know humility, trying to understand, oh, you know, I'm just wondering, uh, Dr. So-and-so um, was doing this and I felt this is how I felt and Dr. So-and-so said this and this is how I felt. What, what, what do you think about that? Um, what, what's your advice? Is this, you know, did I misunderstand his uh, or her intentions? Uh, you know, coming from a position of curiosity, humility and questioning is always going to be perceived a little bit better than coming from a position of, or he was being racist or sexist to me or something to that effect. So just, just be gentle with that. Um, and again, yeah, like I said, there's the informal approaches of speaking to people at, your, at the same level, fellow residents or speaking to a registrar or speaking to another consultant. And again, you know, record as well. That's another thing that some people have done. Right? Just putting little notes to say, look, this is what happened at this time. Uh, and then verification, because that's going to be what's going to be asked, right? Um, did this only happen once or is this something that's happened mm. persistently? Yeah. Uh, you know, 
And then just be very careful because the moment you press that bell on formal complaint, whole lot of processes gets done. And obviously that puts, um, that puts uh, kind of your career, their career, the unit reputation, patient safety, everything falls into line, you know. And interestingly, this is playing out as well, even at a national level, you know, uh, when APRA gets involved, when there's complaints, there's, you know, there's, what is it vexatious complaint? Is it anonymous complaint? Is it real complaint? It gets really, really challenging from that sense, you know. But my advice would be, firstly, understand patient safety and your safety. Secondly, think about, uh, think about a potential um, uh, uh, simple non-threatening um, uh, questions uh, and approaching some of your safe people. Okay. And then and obviously you said if it does seem like it's a, um, like a toxic relationship and uh, there's, you know, recurrences in, in those situations, then making sure that you tell people about it, you're, Yes. making sure you record what happens because like you said as soon as you press that button on on formal yes. complaint that's when things get like really serious and yes. there is obviously a time for that but i think one of the big questions a lot of especially junior doctors medical students have in the back of their minds is you know if they press that button is that just suicide for their career um and you know how do they work out when is the right time to press that button have i done all all the steps of approaching the offender and like you said with curiosity maybe they've brought yeah. some baggage into the workplace from their own life so w when do you think is that that right time to press that button a very very difficult scenario very difficult situation and let's just accept that there's probably no real good answer here um you know firstly being in that situation itself is distressing um and um you know uh finding the right uh response at the right time is also challenging i mean the classic is the fact that you know yes it is a power differential, right? You know, the uh, the professor or the, the senior surgeon on that unit um, versus the words of a junior resident. And this is something that plays out not only in medicine and surgery, but pretty much in most, uh, you know, businesses and, you know, corporate industry. Um, if I go back to that principle to say, Firstly, it's all about patient safety and your safety. When that is compromised, I think that will be a safe time yeah. to just say, like, look, this, this, has, um, this has reached a point where patient safety and the junior doctor or junior clinician safety is compromised. You have to report that. That becomes almost a, a negligence or criminal question. Yeah. Okay, Maybe not criminal, but at least a question about negligence. Um, but then it's all the gray line before that. And I think... Perhaps if you did make few little attempts at non-formal, kind of informal queries, questions to the unit or to your trainee representative or to your junior staff uh, representative in the hospital. So there's the, there's the unit itself, there's the hospital itself, and there's your college that's training you. So those three avenues are simple potential first steps to query, ask, and then see each of their responses. And then always find a person that you can um, confide in as well during this process, um, because I think that is a critical protective factor as well. 
because if you are the only person that's complaining about this per person and no one else is going to back yeah. you up, you are in a very difficult situation. And if it is truly the senior doctor that is, um, that is uh, toxic and dangerous, almost certainly there will be trails of evidence. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, small little steps like that, I think, would be your first few steps to think about their response prior to pressing that formal complaint. And if you are going to go down that path, also just make sure that you get advice, clear advice from, um, from the seniors in your unit or the uh, staff association or your trainee representative as well. And sometimes, sometimes your medical indemnity people may need to be involved here as well or the AMA uh, because it is the AMA and your medical indemnity are also potential advice uh, with regards to workplace safety, bullying, harassment, and safety to patients, you know. So get as much advice as you can before going down that path. Pushing that button. But yes, that, that's right. There will be a time when that might be needed. And this is where it's, it's often made it to the news, you know, some, uh, some uh, hospital accreditation training positions are pulled back because of some of these things. But that's partly because there's been a lot of little signals along the way. And then finally, uh, a, a major uh, step um, is undertaken. You know. Now, having said that as well, the College of Surgeons have been quite proactive in this. Back in 2015, I still remember this, the day when all hell broke loose around the college about sexism, bullying, harassment. And in the last seven years, uh, there's been so many attempts at trying to fix, rectify, modify, uh, train, retrain, exclude, include, uh, all those things have been done. So we are moving in the right direction. We haven't quite reached that point yet, but we're moving in the right direction where we're beginning to kind of self-police ourselves uh, to maintain surgical standards or professional standards in the workplace. So right now, for example, we, uh, the, the College of Surgeons, we're probably one of the few colleges that can say that about 95 to 97% of all our surgical trainers or anyone in leadership position have gone through training on bullying, harassment, and, and understanding that, that cup of coffee conversation, that operating with respect course. Uh, you know, uh, every single person have... You know, who, who, are, who are supervising a trainee or being part of a leadership has had to go through that. And that's a clever way of also trying to exclude people who think that they are good enough that they don't have to go through their training. We <laughs> yeah. take away their, their registrar, we take away their leadership position uh, because we do want them to go through at the very minimum, the most basic uh, of understanding of where the problem is. It's not perfect. You know, of course, there are people who have gone through their training, tick the box and still can be quite challenging. But at least we now speak from a common language uh, of what is bullying, harassment, toxic workplace, you know, and all those issues. That's really insightful. Thank you for that. Um, so you're obviously clearly very knowledgeable and active on social media about mental health, workplace culture, advocacy. Was there something that happened that drove you the decision to become an active voice in that area? Ah, yes, yes. Um, so when I was doing my fellowship, uh, I went through a period where I completely burned out. So it's quite fascinating to me that I didn't burn out when I was a registrar. As a registrar, um, I was doing one-in-one -one on call. There was one time I remember being on call for like 37 days straight or something wow. like that. I was just 
angry all the time because I get interrupted overnight and things that I, on top of being unsafe, uh, I was just, you know, uh, it's no longer legal now, of course, that, that kind of thing. But uh, I'm sure a lot, of, a lot of surgeons may have had that experience. But I think I didn't burn out because I knew I had an endpoint. I had an exam to do. I had to get my fracs. I needed to go somewhere. And then I went into my fellowship years where it was a bit of a honeymoon, things like that. But at the same time as well, I realized that the routinity, the routine mundane work really got at you, okay? And there was, uh, unfortunately, uh, this was uh, um, uh, a news that I read in, in, in Brisbane at that time, a gastroenterologist who completed suicide um, and, and, and his wife. So this is Dr. Andrew Bryan and his wife wrote a very uh, moving letter to be as honest as possible to say, yes, Dr. Andrew Bryan did unfortunately completed suicide and the context of it all. And it was just kind of the door that opened. And I realized if I'm burning out right now at so early in my career, what's going to happen 10 years from now? What's mm -hmm. going to happen 20 years from now? And I, you know, all my hard work um, and all of my training and everything uh, that I've invested in, um, and if, if burnout was going to be a big issue, if depression, mental health issue is going to be a big issue that determines the longevity of my career or the enjoyment of my career, I needed to do something about that. Um, and then I started just looking into the data. And, you know, the data is pretty scarier. You know, we all know this. About one in five of us do have mental health disorder. About one in 10 of us have had thoughts of suicide. One in 20 or one in 50 has had thought of suicide. I even had attempted suicide that's just the kind of one metric the other big metric that we never we never really study is you know, the, the the amount of inefficiency the amount of all that toxic workplace is probably coming from an underlying uh current of of burnout in some of our leaders department heads and fellow colleagues and you see the kind of problem that it creates and i realized more and more that that you know, I can be as good as I can in the operating room, but if I was just a difficult person to work with, um, my surgical results are just not going to be great. My career is not going to be great. So I think that's where I started going into that space. And I realized that this is actually a big problem, bigger than I thought it would be. And I think because we've been sweeping it under the carpet um, and just being on social media, you kind of sometimes hear the undigested opinions of a lot of people and you get a bit of a pulse on the, your finger on a pulse to understand actually this is a huge issue and so I just decided I'm just going to go straight into it and look at it and and see if there's anything that we can do to alter that change to make that change well thank you for sharing with us today mm. I think there are a lot of really good tips for our audience members there going forward in their careers um, if you were to leave our audience just with one tip to take forward in their careers what would that be Oh, you have to do ENT. That's probably the biggest <laughs> tip, you know. <laughs> um, um, interesting. So always very hard to do just one tip, hey, uh, one life lesson. One of the things that I often fall back in is this. So um, we as the, uh, the driven high achievers who have gone through school, medical school, training, whatever specialty training, we have to accept that we are you know, partially a bit perfectionistic. We want to get that one thing that we want. And our unhappiness is in that discrepancy between what we want and where we are right now. That's where our frustration, our unhappiness lies in. So therefore, if you think about, they say, you know, happiness is doing the things you, you love. I've just want 
people to think about flipping that back. What if happiness is not doing the thing you love, but loving the thing you do? So what I mean by that is this, that, you know, when you are seeking for something all the time and your mind is up there somewhere in that ideal world and where you are right now looks very different, you're going to be upset. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be not depressed, but just, just frustrated at trying to get that one thing you want. But if you think that everything that you do right now is part of the bigger journey that you experience, you know, when you're putting in an IV, hey, you're getting paid for that IV. You know, you are actually <laughs> helping somebody to get their treatment, you know. So the, that 10th IV line or that 6th IDC that you insert as an internet two in the morning doesn't become as bad when you realize the bigger picture is that actually you're doing an amazing job, you're helping people, you're making a difference, uh, and that's where your enjoyment or job satisfaction comes in. So I don't know if, if there was one particular thing I'd leave uh, you with is that, you know, uh, happiness is not necessarily doing the thing you love, but actually loving the things you do. And you guys are guys, girls, and other non-binary terminologies, I should say. Um, you are in an amazing career you know um you could be anything from a clinician behind a desk that never sees patient uh to an administrator to a clinician on the front line to an epidemiologist or anything that you want once you finish medical school and whatever training you have so you know the kind of things that you experience on a day-to-day -day basis is not something that a lot of people experience and you have that privilege to that so so just enjoy that and the next time you're trying to calculate the p-values on something and you're <laughs> hating it and doing the biostatistics and you're hating it, it it will you know count for something in the future and that's something precious that, that not too many people get to do that's a wonderful piece of advice thank you for sharing that and thank you again for joining us today on the podcast yeah thank you my pleasure. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Scalpel. See you next time, either on our next episode or at one of Sergio's upcoming events.